Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 20 years ago, beginning on April 6, 1994, more than 800,000 people were killed in Rwanda in a horrific genocide that spanned 100 days. Genocide continues to be a tragic global issue. And Paul Rusesabagina, whose autobiography, An Ordinary Man, inspired the film Hotel Rwanda, joins us from Brussels, Belgium, for the program today. As manager of the exclusive Hotel Mille Collines, he sheltered more than 1,200 Tutsis and Hutu moderates from the mass killing going on around him. In his book, he relates the anguish of those who saw loved ones brutally murdered and describes his ambivalence at pouring scotch and lighting the cigars of killers at the swimming pool bar, even as he was trying to cram as many refugees as possible inside the guest rooms upstairs. We'll talk about the Rwandan genocide and genocides throughout history and other subjects, of course, with Paul Rusesabagina. Mr. Rusesabagina, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Tom. Uh, how are things in Brussels? Uh, things are uh, going, going on very well. The weather is uh, so beautiful, a uh, blue sky, sunny, around 65 degrees. It is very beautiful, very lovely. Oh, great. We're grateful for technology that allows us to connect from Utah to Brussels to talk to you today. Uh, so, An Ordinary Man, your autobiography is being republished to mark the 20th anniversary, of course, of, of the genocide. I wonder if we could start uh, at the beginning. You describe a, a, a wonderful childhood. Um, your family uh, apparently was uh, sort of middle class. You had a farm there. Uh, you'd be considered poor by European standards, but you, you had a great childhood, it sounds like. Uh, yes, I had an exceptionally childhood. I was blessed to be born in a mixed family and grew up in a, in a family that uh, did not make any difference between ethnic groups or any races until the age of around 19 when I just went to school one morning of uh, this was on February 26, 1973, when one of my friends, we went to school together, we used to go to school together as day students, and that day we found ourselves at school. They would, he was told that he cannot attend because he was a Tutsi for, for his father. His father was a Tutsi and his mother was a Hutu, and me, it was the opposite. And in, since we follow our fathers that day, it was my turn to stay at school and his turn to be kicked out because of what he was. That marked my, my life and completely changed me throughout mm. my whole life. Now, your, your father was, was Hutu and your mother Tutsi? Is that, yes. That true. And and you 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 are considered Hutu because your father is Hutu, and you married a Tutsi woman. Yes, I was considered as a Hutu because, as I said previously, in Rwanda we follow our fathers. Yeah. So I you had a Hutu father, and I became a Hutu. And yeah. that friend of mine had a a, Hutu, a Tutsi father and a Hutu mother. Then he was considered as a Tutsi. So when I grew up, of course, I happened to feel like being a man, and I married the woman I loved, who right. happened to be a Tutsi girl. 
And this this happened a lot, right? Tutus and Tutsis marrying each other. Yeah, in the central and southern Rwanda, it is very common. It is not an exception. My parents were married in 1938. This is uh, a long time ago, almost 80 years ago. Yeah. So they was they had no problem when we were growing up. We were among the happiest kids. Yeah. Ever. So uh, tell me about uh, so what what were what were the problems? Uh, yeah, Tutsis were the former ruling class. Hutus were mostly farmers, lived together uneasily, I suppose, for for what hundreds of years. Yes, they lived together. They lived together uneasily for about. They have been living together for about four de- four, de- four four centuries, and uh, because of power. These people have never really have politically been close. Mm-hmm. It, uh, before 1959, it used to be Tutsi kings and also the colonialists. I mean, at that time, Belgians played one of the most important roles also in separating Rwandans. They actually took Hutus to be stupid, to, be, to have been created, to be ruled never to be leaders, by saying that Tutsis were much more clever, more intelligent, closer to European society, and then they were leaders until 1959 when the Hutu majority then through a 1959 revolution took over from the Tutsis. And unfortunately, uh, when, when Tutsis lost power, they went to exile. Mm-hmm. And from exile, were in refugee camps without food, without shelter, without schools for their children, having nothing else to do, nothing else to offer to their children. The children then were recruited in the then, in the then liberation movements in the region, and they became soldiers. That is how they got, in, got involved in fighting in Mozambique and in Uganda especially, and then later on. They invaded Rwanda from Uganda on October 1st, 1990. Now you, in the meantime, you went to school and you got into hotel management. At the beginning, I thought I would make a very good officer in the army. I then wanted, after my high school, I just went to the military academy that was, it happened not to be the right time, in the right, in the right place. I was coming from the wrong side. And then I went to theology, I did theology. And after theology, by accident, as I said, I found myself, I was destined to something different. I found myself in the hospitality industry. Hmm. And then in the hospitality industry, I just climbed the ladder from a front office clerk, then went to a hotel management school, and then from the hotel in the hotel management school, I became after afterwards after my graduation, I became a hotel manager. Mm-hmm. You were the first Rwandan to be a manager of a of a major hotel, I think. Oh yes, of one of the biggest hotels actually that. Two, three, the two biggest hotels in uh, the country. Hmm. Uh, tell me about this, the, the hotel, the center of, of the story, Hotel uh, Mille Collines, at five stories. This was the, one of the most exclusive 
hotels, right, in the country? It was actually the best hotel of Kigali. And so who would who would generally stay there? Oh, you would see that uh, Mikolin Hotel, the location, it is, it is a hotel that exists even today. And it has kept that name, I believe, that name has made history and will still be there for, for that and forever. So who were our clients? You would see many government officials, high-ranking generals. Uh, it was a kind of business center because, and also a diplomatic kind of meeting place because it was very close to almost all the embassies. Everybody would come, even arms dealers, when the war started, would come and have a drink, share some coffee in the morning around from 10 10 a.m. onwards for a month around 1 p.m. the following morning. So it was actually the, the kind of uh, the, the highest-ranking hotel in the capital city, which had the maximum of the, the higher class. Mm. Now, the, there began to be more and more trouble, uh, and the genocide erupted April 6, 1994, I guess the the precipitating event was the shooting down of the president uh, president's plane. Uh, definitely, 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 that was the striking event for the Rwandan genocide. Hmm. The but before the genocide, because the genocide did not calcul- did not come out of nowhere and find itself in a small country called Rwanda on the earth. It was you could see that a lot of a lot of um, tensions were very clear in the whole country during that period of time. Around 19 around 1990 in 1990 1990, October 1st, that is when a war broke out in Rwanda, and with a war, we saw by the actually it was those Tutsis who had gone to exile who attacked from Uganda, they had been warring in Eastern Africa. And then by that, that day, they attacked Rwanda from Uganda. And when they attacked Rwanda from Uganda, they unfortunately, they did not learn any lessons from the exile where they had been for 30 years. They also started killing Hutu civilians. And the result was that all the populations on the mountains and hills of eastern Rwanda started moving behind the regular army, fleeing all the zones being occupied by the Tutsi rebels. Then, by 1993, late, we had more than a million Rwandans who had fled all those zones, and the zones behind the, where the rebels was empty. And then... And then we also had another striking event in the Rwandan genocide. In June 1993, a Hutu president was elected in Burundi because Burundi and Rwanda are actually twin countries. So when this Hutu president was elected, he was killed four months later, October 21, 1993, by the Tutsi rebels. Now, that time, the whole region was boiling. And killing two presidents 
two Hutu presidents to make it worse in the same plane was just like taking tons and tons of oil and pouring it on a burning fire. Mm. We will take a short break. We'll be back with Paul Rusesa Bagina. His autobiography, An Ordinary Man, is being republished to mark the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide. We'll talk about uh, just surreal uh, scenes, including a man who in the book is called Peter, some pseudonyms are used, uh, who is a former friend of Paul Rusesa Bagina, who, uh, who he saw macheteing uh, neighbors. It, it's just a horrific uh, tale. We'll talk about genocide. In the book, Paul Rusesa Bagina uh, compares uh, this, of course, to the Holocaust and other genocides and talks about how perhaps we can prevent future genocide. He has a foundation which works on these issues as well. More with Paul Rusesa Bagina on his autobiography, An Ordinary Man, following this break. On NPR News, it's all about the story. People can surprise you anytime. The people behind movies, books, and music. Music is like a Rorschach test, you know, and people hear what they want to hear. I'm Arun Roth, the new host of All Things Considered from NPR News, now coming to you every weekend from NPR West in Southern California. Weekend afternoons at 4 on Utah Public Radio. Waste not. A small drip leak on a faucet leaks up to 15 gallons per day. That's 450 per month. So make sure to check your faucets regularly. Another tip, turn off the water while brushing your teeth and save 25 gallons a month. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to be joined by Paul Rusesa Bagina. His autobiography, An Ordinary Man, inspired the film, which you may have seen, Hotel Rwanda. During the horrific Rwandan genocide, which began April 6, 1994, began this month, 20 years ago, more than 800,000 people were killed in that genocide. It spanned 100 days, and we're talking with Paul Rusesabagina. He joins us on the telephone from his home in Brussels, uh, Belgium. Uh, Paul Rusesabagina, I wonder if you could tell us about the beginnings of, of the genocide, specifically... You talk about a man that uh, had, had been a friend, at least an acquaintance of yours in your neighborhood. You describe him, well, you use the word, uh, the name Peter. I think that's a pseudonym. Uh, and, and you describe him, you say the only way to describe him is the American word cool. He was, a, he, was a, he was a nice man. Yeah, definitely. It is too unfortunate that uh, sometimes people can follow the majority. That young man was according to what we could see, someone who would look like an angel. We shared a lot of barbecues. We shared a lot of food. And all overnight, overnight the following morning, the morning of July, of April 7th, I saw him with, with a gun in a military uniform killing neighbors. Hmm. Many of them, many of those guys who could see, as executives in big companies, in the banks, we saw them with, in militia uniforms, with their machetes, with their, all the traditional weapons 
that anyone can think of. It was really, it touched my life. And this changed my whole life and taught me one of the most important lessons. A human being, what is a human being? A human being is like a shark, which can just fly at the bottom of a sea very quietly. But when nervous, comes up and breaks boats. Hmm. So it was not only that man, it was many also many others who behaved the same way. And as you tell it, um, there were these chilling broadcasts on radio, uh, including uh, broadcasting the direction and location of people who were fleeing and, and urging people to do their duty and, and, to, and to kill their neighbor. This is what I call the power of words. Words can be the best tools of life, and also they can be the worst ones when they are used in the wrong way. When I was using my words to help the maximum I could help, and by luck, we happened to help 1,268 people to survive. No one was killed. No one was taken out to be beaten or to be killed outside. And no one, no one was even beaten at the hotel compound. Hmm. So others were using their words in order to kill. The RTLM radio was urging people to kill their neighbors, asking, telling them even to help fill the graves because they are not yet full. Killing had become a duty. This radio, this media tool was urging neighbors to go into other neighbors' roofs, look for people who had fled there, kill them, help fill the graves. So the media, the words can be the best tools of life. They can be the worst, depending on what we want to achieve as a goal. Yes, you say in your book that uh, words were your really your only weapon. You, you knew these men who were in charge. Uh, they would come in, you'd give them free drinks, and you would persuade them to neglect their duty of killing the people in the hotel for one more day? Yes, I say so. But this did not only start in, 19, in April 1994. It also started a long way before. A long way before, during my career, I used to welcome you and everyone in my, my public relations, sit down with them, offer them a drink, and what I have noticed is the fact that whoever comes, sits with you at a table, share a drink. As we say, and we call it in Kinyarwanda, it is not supposed to be tea, as we say, or, or coffee or something of that nature, or water. This is supposed to be something serious. A drink, I mean, alcohol. So any person who actually comes, sits with you, and face to face, and you show that person that she, he or she should not fear you, 
they, when, before they kill you, they think twice, if not more. Mm. So this taught me that treating people like friends, it is like, they're like putting some money into a bank. You never know. Some one day, time comes when you need those people. And then as time comes, when you need your money, the money you put into a bank. Me, I had stockpiled some favors. And when time came, I cashed my favors in, and I borrowed heavily, as I say, as I write in an ordinary man. So, and you used whatever you could. Really, words were all you had, right? You you flattered, you cajole, cajoled, you you pled. I get whatever you needed to do. Whatever you need to do with the words, I have noticed that the best, uh, the best and worst weapons in a human being's arsenal are words than anything else. Mm-hmm. I can talk about you know, drinks, out of alcohol, as I said. I can talk about anything else, but words were the best tools of life during the Rwandan genocide mm. in 1994. Now, what? since all you had was words, they could have killed you at any time and killed all of your guests. What did you think from day to day? Tomorrow might be the day that they do this? At a given level, around May 1994, they noticed that before they kill all the refugees under my responsibility, they had to kill me. Then I'm, I became one of the most, actually the most wanted targets. And they came to me, a few of them came to me and told me that we know that they are going to kill you. Why don't you come with us and you leave this place? I told them that, my friend, I have listened to my advisor. What I call my advisor in my life is my conscience. And my conscience has told me not to leave. I know they are going to kill me, but before they kill me, let me do another thing, another small thing. And I went on like that until the end of the genocide. Mm. At the end of the genocide, I looked at myself. I was still there without any scratch. I was just there alive. And I said to myself that the rest of my life from 1994 until a day I do not know, that will be my bonus. Mm. My bonus so far, 20 years of bonus, that is huge. Yeah, that, that is, that is. Uh, we're talking with Paul Rusesa Begina, if you've just joined us. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, that's because uh, his autobiography, Extraordinary Story, it's called An Ordinary Man, uh, as the uh, general manager of the Hotel Mille Collines, the most uh, exclusive uh, hotel in Kigali during the Rwandan uh, genocide, he was able to uh, save more than 1,200 Tutsis and Hutu moderates from the mass killings going on around them. 
Uh, and uh, the the book, An Ordinary Man, is being reissued on the 20th anniversary of that genocide, which began April 6, 1994, went for 100 days. 800,000 people were killed in Rwanda during that time. We're talking with uh, Paul Rusesabagina from his home in uh, Brussels, Belgium. You're welcome to join the conversation. The best way uh, probably is email, upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page as well if you have a question or comment for Paul Rusesa Begina. Uh, Mr. Rusesa Begina, you, you say uh, this is just it's just horrific to try to wrap your mind around it. In fact, in the book, you say it's impossible. So 800,000 people killed in 100 days. You say this genocide was the fastest and most efficient in history. Uh, 8,000 per day, five lives per minute. It, it, it is horrific to, to even try to think about. Definitely, this is what a human mind cannot very easily grasp. As I describe in an ordinary man, people can never understand the extent of mass killings that was taking between 8,000 and 10,000 every day. In a, in a small country like Rwanda, which is, has got only 26,000 square kilometers, the size of Vermont in the United States, we were about 7.23 million people in that small country. And at the end of the whole process, between April 6th and July 4th, 1994, 800,000 people were killed according to the United Nations, and a million point one seventy four, according to the Rwandan government, people were killed. So you can never imagine in such a small place such a number of people being killed, which was between 10 and 15 percent of the whole population, killed in about 90 days. That was, that was so horrific. All around us, we could see only dead bodies. I will never forget one of my experiences. This was on April 9th, 1994, when I was evacuated by the army guys from my house to the hotel. And on my way, a mile away, as Hotel Rwanda portrays me, not on the hotel compound, I just saw the, one of the, the young captain who was leading the team slowing down. He was ahead of us in a jeep with about 10 other soldiers and the 10 others behind us in another jeep. I saw him slowing down and stopping and now coming to me and guns on my head telling me that, listen, you traitor, you are lucky. We are not killing you today because we need you. We need your services. We have taken over your hotel. The government is in then we need your services. But take this gun. Kill all of your cockroaches in these cars, dehumanizing people before killing them. Mm. That very day, I was seeing a lot of dead bodies all along the street. Many of them, their heads cut off. Others' bellies opened. It was one of the scariest moments of my life. Mm. But still... I believe that each and everyone will die, but when 
That is the whole question. When, only when the day will come. That, that must have been horrible on on so many different levels, including you're, you're pouring drinks for and I guess forcing yourself to talk on a normal level with army commanders, militia commanders who are leading this horrible genocide. You, you have to do this to, to try to save the, the guests in your, in your hotel. Of course, this is what they say in English. You keep your friends close and your enemy closer. Because if you don't, you will never know what they think. You never know what is next. And in such circumstances, people need a network. They need information. They need to know what is going to be following. This is how on April, it was on April, uh, on, on, June, on June 17th, early in the morning at 6, I was informed that militias were killing people refugees at a church called Holy Family, which is about 500 meters from the hotel. I started calling all the generals I knew and calling all the people I knew in the country and all over the world, urging them to intervene. Because if they would not, I knew that the next target was my hotel, where they had never killed anyone up to that time. Mm. And when I was calling, I saw one of the guys who was, who was in charge of, uh, of the of secu- of security in Kigali coming into the hotel. I went to, look for, to, to, to speak to him. And when I was standing in front of him, I remember telling him that, sir, you are the right person, in the right place at the right time. I need you. I need your help. I know what is going on in the next in the, the neighboring church. We and uh, I know that after the church to be me my hotel. I need the police. I need the army to come and protect us. He looked at me and told me that listen, Paul. I don't have soldiers. All the soldiers are fighting, and all the police guys are protecting official buildings. Very angry, because sometimes I could get angry as well. I was, you can never be that good, depending, of course, on the person you're talking to, how you know each other. So very angry, I just looked at him and told him that, sir, all of this you and I see today will one day come to an end. And that very day of the end, you and I will sit down and answer a few questions from history. Mm-hmm. Is this the question, is this the answer we are going to give? That soldiers, police people are protecting buildings and human beings are being hacked to death. He also became angry. I saw him joining his soldiers into his jeep and leaving. That day, to me, I was desperate. And when I saw him leaving, but I had an appointment with his boss at the Diplomat Hotel because I had now taken over all the properties of the Sabina Airline in the country, almost the Belgian belongings. 
that have taken over the responsibilities. Then I had, uh, I had an appointment with his boss at the other hotel to give him some supplies. And when we were just uh, after we were, this guy left me there standing, admiring dead flowers of uh, the summer of 1994 under the sun, standing there without any other solution, I remembered that I had an appointment with that boss of his. And then I went to meet him. And when we were standing at the diplomat cellars, I was informed that after killing 150 people in that hotel, they were running, rushing, coming to the Mikolin Hotel. And I told the general that, sir, let us run, go to the Mikolin Hotel, because this is what is happening, and we can. That very day, this gentleman is the one who saved our lives. Many people had been taken down to the swimming, by the swimming pool. They were already kneeling down, saying their final prayer before they are slaughtered. Many people, other, many doors, hotel doors, had already been broken. That was, this is a day, this was a moment that I will never, ever forget mm. in my whole life. Extraordinary, extraordinary. We'll hear more of Paul Rusesabagina's story. It's outlined in his autobiography, An Ordinary Man. Its book is being reissued on the 20th anniversary of this horrific genocide in Rwanda. 800,000 people killed in 100 days. Paul Rusesabagina uh, says it may not have been the largest genocide in history, but it certainly was the fastest and most efficient um, to illustrate this, he says in his book that uh, those uh, more than 1,200 people he was able to help save, uh, that was about four hours' worth of, 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 of this horrific genocide. Well, uh, when we come back from break, I'll have Mr. Rusesa Begina outline a, a, just a pulse-pounding story about uh, how his family was allowed to leave with some other uh, people, but their uh, convoy was stopped and uh, just an incredible story there. We'll also talk about uh, w- the international reaction, which essentially was nothing, <laughs> and, and how that could have happened. And we'll talk about other genocides in history as well, and, and uh, what Mr. Rusesa Begin is up to today. All of that following this next break. The greatest story ever told? Well, that was the title of a popular film of the 1960s, but long before the development of film, a choir master in Leipzig applied his mastery to the passion story, creating music that is cinematic in its fervor and profound in its inspiration. This is Bill McLaughlin. Join us as we listen to Bach's towering masterpiece, The St. Matthew Passion, this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3. Now offering a house-pickled vegetable demi-baguette sandwich with tomato jam. Menu details at crumbbrothers.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. During the Rwandan genocide, which began April 6, 1994, 20 years ago this month, 
800,000 people were killed in 100 days. Uh, during those horrific times, Paul Recessabagina, as general manager of the uh, Posh uh, Hotel, Hotel Mil Colin in Kigali, was able, uh, mostly through his words, his connections, favors that he had uh, given over the years, was able to save in excess of 1,200 people, uh, Tutsis and uh, moderate Hutus. Uh, and, uh, of course, you probably have seen this story in the, the movie Hotel Rwanda, and uh, the book is out, uh, re- been reissued. You can read it. Just uh, an extraordinary story. We're talking with Paul Recessabagina, who joins us uh, by telephone from his home in Brussels, uh, Belgium. Mr. Recessabagina, you say, that this is just tragic, you say that a small international force in those early days, uh, April 1994, could have prevented this. Definitely, Rwandans are always kind of ashamed to do such a horrific thing in front of a a kind of disturbing witness. Rwandans could not have killed Rwandans in front of the international community. And before the international community got involved, This was around August 1993, when the two warring factions, factions Hutus and Tutsis, had been negotiating for for many months in Arusha, Tanzania. And on August 4th, they came up with a peace agreement, a peace accord of sharing the government, sharing power. So... That very day, the international community, for the first time, pretended, showed us a sign that they were going to get involved. As I described previously, that time, around that time, we were so scared. There were so many heavy tensions in the whole country and in the whole region. And you could see it. It was so clear. Many people could hear that. Uh, you could hear that. People were gathered in a bus station, and uh, some militias or infiltrated uh, rebel, rebels would come in and throw in grenades and kill many people and injure, injuring many others. And at that time, we had fled the capital city. Many people were living in neighboring small towns. And when we noticed that the international community was involved, all the people said, okay, this is the right time for peace. All those who had fled their houses, they came back to live in Kigali. And then the international community, we saw it coming in with a more than 2,500 soldiers, led by a Canadian general, General Romeo Dallaire. And then these people, they inspired us, inspiring us, peace. We never knew what was their real mission. Their real mission was not to make peace. Their real mission was not to to protect their victims. Their real mission was to come, stand, observe. And at the end of the day, sit down in an office, draft a, a telex message, send it a cable, send it to New York, and just report and say, oh, well, we have those guys, we have seen those guys, they are so horrible and wild, 
They have killed so many people today. This was it. And we never realized that this is what was supposed to, this was their mission. And our disappointment was the fact that the genocide broke out on April 6th and on the 7th. When the Rwandan army now became a little bit tricky as Somalis did with Americans in 1993, they killed 10, 10 Belgian soldiers from the PUN peacekeeping force. And when these guys were killed, that very same morning, the Belgian government decided to pull out from the peacekeeping force, and they had more than 300 soldiers, and backed by the United States, the United Kingdom, the whole world decided just immediately to abandon a whole nation to thugs and thieves, to gangsters, and without any witness, because the international community army had ran away without any witness. We saw Rwandans butchering Rwandans. Hmm. We are, are coming at just about uh, six minutes left in the program. Uh, I want to ask you two key questions as, as we get near the end. One, uh, we, we ask with distressing frequency, uh, you know, R- Rwanda, Bosnia, the Holocaust, um, Cambodia. It, it's just depressing to think about the genocides. Uh, you've probably thought about this, Mr. Uh, Rusesa Bagina. Uh, how, how can people do this? These are neighbors. You, you mentioned your, your neighbor, Peter. You'd had him over for barbecue, and, and then he's macheting uh, people. How, how can people do this? I think there are many reasons why people kill people. One of the most important people, the reason, is leaders. When you see leaders actually using ethnicity, like in Rwanda, to divide and rule, then there's a problem somewhere, somehow, somewhere. So when bad leaders give bad instructions and bad leadership, that is the result we should always expect what we see from all the dictatorships we have seen. And these bad leaders, when they have their leading people who never went to school, illiterate, who believe in intellectuals, whatever they say, everybody, the majority, which is not educated, will always tend to follow what the leaders, the majority, will do. When we deal with the poor people, like Rwandans, who have got nothing to eat, who don't eat two meals a day, and you tell them that go kill that neighbor of yours, once again coming back to leadership, and that person, that person knowing that, through impunity, which is also another problem, through impunity, the parent, his or her parents have done it. And these people have never been taken to account, never taken to any court. You see people living in other people's houses. They have been living there for 30, 40 years, and no one brought, no one brought them to account. So we should expect such things. And Rwanda, as we know, 
is one of the most populated countries in the world with such a population without even land. People can't even farm. So we should expect such things to happen. And this is why I believe Rwanda became what it is today. The second question, of course, when we think about genocide, how do we prevent this from happening in the future? I think this, the Rwandan genocide was preventable. Instead of running away, within the international community has taken its responsibility. And instead of pulling out, running away, protect the people, bring them to account, then the genocide wouldn't have taken place. So I believe that in order to prevent this, the United Nations should take their responsibilities and have even define a stronger mission. We have seen this happening in many countries, such as the Congo, the neighboring Congo, where since 96 to date, more than 7 million, as they say, humanitarians say, more than 7 million people have been butchered on our watch we never said anything. Even the media don't talk about what has happened in the Congo. About 300,000 Hutu refugees were killed between 1996 and 2003. And no one talks about this. And this, according to the UN mapping report of the, on the Congo, these people who were killed are not fighters. They were mostly kids women, old people, sick people, and so on. Those ones who were not at all fighters. Now, according to this report, this could even be considered as a genocide if approved by a competent institution. So I think that to prevent this, we have to defend the mission and make it as strong as a UN peacekeeping mission. In the Congo, we had more than 20,000. Those 20,000 have been in for 18 years, never did anything. And recently, the SADC sent in 3,000 with a stronger mission. Today, M23, which was entertained by today's Rwandan government, is out of the Congo. So, why didn't we give a special mission to those 20,000 soldiers? By now, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about the, the genocide in the Congo. The same thing has, happened, has been happening in Darfur, where I went. The same thing has been happening in the Central African Republic, in Southern Sudan. It is happening today. And we always close our eyes, unfortunately, and the ears and pretend not to see, not to hear, because simply we do not want to get involved. We uh, are just about out of time. We'll have to leave it there. There's much more, of course, in the book. It's been reissued. It's the autobiography of Paul Rusesa Begina. An Ordinary Man is now been reissued on the 20th anniversary of the uh, Rwandan genocide. Uh, Paul Rusesa Begina has joined us from his home in Brussels, Belgium. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. And uh, join us tomorrow for uh, Science Questions in Access Utah with uh, Sherry Quinn. For producers Katie Swain 
And to Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Utah Public Radio presents StoryCorps, an oral history project in conjunction with the National Library of Congress, recorded in May of 2013 in St. George. UPR's Nora Zambrino met up with her academic mentor, Glenn Wild, at the StoryCorps booth. Glenn served as Dean of the Learning Resources Program at Utah State University and shared these memories of his early career at Utah State and delivering credit classes in Utah's Uinta Basin for the Extension Class Division. In one year, I completed my master's degree at, at Utah State. And uh, I was sitting there in, in, in what they called the the TJs, which was an old army barracks behind the, the Merrill Library. And uh, King Hendricks, it was a Sunday morning, and I was over correcting student papers and things like that. And again, you know, it's something you never knew would happen. But King came to me, and he said, would you like to teach for us? Well, man, I, I couldn't believe it. And I went home, and we were living in what they called the triad, which was the student housing. And I told Anne, and it was $6,200, which was pretty good salary for those days. And so I was hired on by King Hendricks to, to teach English for Utah State University with my master's degree. And then uh, what, what really happened was some of the most unplanned and fortuitous events that could ever happen in a person's life was that you, you started teaching, and you, you loved teaching, and you got certain opportunities. For example, I got opportunities to, to teach the foreign student English. These were, these were students from Thailand. These were students from Iran. These were students from Iraq. These were students from, from Israel, all in one class. And uh, it was teaching them writing. And so I, I, I was able to, to do that. But... Uh, at, at the same time, I mean, uh, a young young staff person needs additional money to pay off loans and things that, that you had. And so uh, Lloyd Drury and the Extension Service, they were starting a program in the Uinta Basin, in Vernal, in Roosevelt, a USU center out there. And uh, they needed a, a, somebody to teach English. And they were going to fly them out on the old university aircraft. It was an old twin tail beach that you could hear all the way uh, down the valley. My wife said she knew I was home and safe when she heard that uh, <laughs> that plane flying <laughs> 10 miles away. But I started teaching for the extension service as well as teaching my on-campus load. I'd leave at uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and you would uh, fly out to teach your class come back about 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night. And uh, it, was, it was a marvelous experience uh, for me because w when I first went to that class, there were 60 people sitting in this high school classroom wanting to get an education. These were adult people. And one of them, uh, I remember his name, Holman Hood. 
he looked like the man from Grant Wood's The American Gothic, standing there with his pitchfork. It was, it was a great experience uh, for me. They, they had to divide the class into threes, and, and, and I, had, uh, I had a class that, uh, that really made you want to help adults, those who never had the opportunity that, that I had, and to go out there and to see what, what they would do with such meager resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember one of the students in, in the second class, which was the, the, the uh, not just the expository writing, but the research writing. She wrote a paper that was almost publishable about John Steinbeck. And with so few resources available, it was just a great experience. These interviews were recorded at StoryCorps, a national initiative to record and collect stories of everyday people. Excerpts were selected and produced by Utah Public Radio. Support for StoryCorps on Utah Public Radio comes from Dixie Regional Medical Center, located on two campuses in St. George, serving northwestern Arizona, southeastern Nevada, and southern Utah. Information at DixieRegional.org. the duck with the best radio side manner on the next Zorba Faster on your health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this tasty recipe. Feta and cauliflower omelets. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Faster on your health from PRI, Public Radio International. Tuesday morning at 3 and Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.